We continue our study in Peter's letter, the first epistle of Peter. And of course, we are still just in chapter 1, but moving along. I'd have you take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. The banner that hangs over this entire study for probably yet months to come is a living hope in the worst of times. And we continue as we come now to verse 6 of chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading for us verses 6 through 9, verses 6 through 9. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. You may have a different good English translation. The words may differ here and there, but the message, of course, is the same. But follow along as we begin reading 1 Peter chapter 1 at verse 6. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Father, I ask now that you might take charge of my words and employ them to speak that which your word says to us this very morning. We might capture its truth that it might be your power to transform our minds that you'll plant this eternal word as seed in our souls. And for your honor and glory, may it bring forth a great harvest of righteousness. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Peter has prayed for us as well. You may remember back there in verse 2 of this first chapter, he prayed that we would have more grace. May grace and peace, he says, be multiplied to you. And I'm delighted to be able to affirm that that prayer is answered for every new generation of true believers. As we've already heard this morning in beautiful song, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's why we like to sing about God's grace. Could anything be more classic than Newton's Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton, by the way, in those classic lyrics, provides some profound biblical counsel when he wrote these two phrases and put them together. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will yes, lead me home. Believing the first line, this grace has brought me safe thus far, fortifies our faith in the second line. And the Apostle Peter would say that believing the second line 
grace will lead me home, empowers a radical commitment and obedience to Jesus Christ. We're headed somewhere. And it's grace that is the true fountainhead of all joy. Even while, Peter says, we continue to live in a very hurtful, a very painful, fallen world. But we learn as well that God's grace is ever abundantly sufficient for whatever comes our way before our great salvation is fully revealed in the coming of Christ. Now, in our study, we've come to verse 6. And the phrase, you see it there, in this you greatly rejoice. So I want to ask, dear believer, what causes you to rejoice? Or glancing at just maybe a few of you this morning, I might get a little more pointed and ask the question, are you rejoicing? Does it show on your face? Can it be detected in your tone of voice? Is your concept of joy something that can be discerned by others, even when there are tears in your eyes, or even unspoken sources of grief in your heart? Now, if that's not the case, or it's not as true as you would like it to be, Peter can help us this morning. He says, in this you greatly rejoice. We need simply to ask, in what, Peter? And that will give us the opportunity to look back over what I like to call those mountain peaks of God's amazing grace, which Peter has unfolded in the previous five verses. And so for purposes of self-examination and review, I ask you if these are the things in which You are now rejoicing. I'm going to give them quickly. Number one, you have been chosen by God. Number two, you have been intimately known by God from all eternity. Peter called it the foreknowledge of God. Number three, you have been set apart by the Holy Spirit to become God's child. Number four. Your old desires have been exchanged for a new desire to obey Jesus Christ. Number five, you are being cleansed continuously by the blood of Christ, which will never lose its power. You and I live in the freedom of continual forgiveness. Number six. There is a steady stream of grace and peace flowing from God's throne to your soul. Number seven, all your sins, and they were many, and some were great. Nevertheless, they were no match for God's great mercies. So he caused you to be born again. Number eight. You possess a living hope in a risen, never-to-die-again Savior. Number nine, there is an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance with your name on it, reserved and guaranteed in heaven. It is your eternal life in all of its glory.
And if that weren't enough, number 10, verse 5, says that the omnipotent, the almighty hand of God is wrapped around you in the here and the now and will personally guide you all the way home. And grace shall lead me home. In this, in those things, you greatly rejoice, my friends, because anything other than those saying those things are a mirage. That's why some of you are living in a sense of disappointment, and discouragement, as opposed to greatly rejoicing. Because anything other than those things is a false hope. The best the world can offer is a cold comfort, a fading glory, a passing happenstance, an evaporating dream, a disappointing outcome. The world and our lives are full of those things. But in the thin things which Peter listed for us in those first verses, there is a certain joy that cannot be affected by circumstance. So you see, our joy or lack of it gives us away. We are either rejoicing in the unfathomable riches of Christ Jesus our Lord or we are sad sacks. Unwittingly but foolishly proving that nothing in this world can ever satisfy. But we weren't sent to prove to the world what they're already learning, that the world cannot satisfy. We're sent to exemplify the fact that only Jesus can satisfy. While preparing myself for these studies in First Peter, I want to share, I was particularly struck by one scholar's insight into Peter's concept of salvation itself. His name is Peter Davids, and he observes, and I'd like to quote. He says, while salvation is clearly the possession of God's redeemed now, the Christian does not fully experience salvation until the return of Christ. Note how Peter puts salvation in a future tense. End uh, of verse 5 there. Salvation which will be revealed in the last time. We would say in the last day. Look down at verse 9. He says, we obtain, that's a future event, the outcome of our faith, which is the salvation of our souls. Salvation in this sense is something we are always looking forward to. I have to confess that, even though quite sincerely, I would speak of salvation as that which looks back. You might hear me say that in 1952, I got saved. But this particular theologian reminds us of what Peter actually teaches. I think he's quite accurate when he says, to say, I got saved or even I am saved, would not have made much sense to Peter in the first century. Let me put it this way. 
if I lived in the day of the apostles and I walked up to Peter, wanting him to autograph his letters for me, probably. And I said to him, I'm saved. He probably would have raised an eyebrow, looked at me and said, young man, because I would have been young back then. Young man, if you are saved, why are you still here? Why do you still sin? You say you're saved. Why are you still suffering? You say you're saved. Why are you not yet glorified? And then the gentle apostle would begin to teach me. And he does that, by the way, through his epistles. He may say, young man, you may be redeemed. But you can't say in the sense of fullness, you cannot say you are saved in the sense that the actual experience of the fullness of that salvation has come. Because he would say that cannot come before the revelation of Christ at the end of the last day. It's what his text says. Let's compare Peter with others, as the scripture says elsewhere. Beloved, now, that's present tense, we are children of God, but it has not yet, that's future tense, it has not yet appeared what we will be, future tense. We know now, that's assurance, that when, when he appears, we will be like him. Because we will see him just as he is. That's why the scripture says our redemption, our salvation, that is in the fullest sense, is drawing nigh. Salvation fully consummated. And the words I just gave you were the words of the Apostle John where he was writing in 1 John 3. And I want you to know what he goes on to say there. We won't take the time to turn to it. But like Peter, it's this forward look. The salvation to come is meant, apparently, to motivate our obedience. Here's how John went on to say. We know now, that's present tense, that when he appears, that's future tense, we will be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And he goes on to say, and everyone who has this hope, that's present tense, fixed on him. That salvation to come now in the present tense purifies himself just as he, Christ, is pure. Beloved, I think we've been missing, a lot of us have been missing something for a lot of years in our rather uh, cliche-ridden Christian lives. We love to talk about the fact that we were saved in the past tense. And Peter would say, you haven't begun to experience the motivation of what it means to see your salvation in one sense as not having fully come. Because the one who has the hope that salvation will mean not only redemption from our sins, but it will mean a full and complete deliverance out of this world of woe. Our salvation is still being revealed and will not fully be revealed, Peter says, until Jesus comes Again, so these apostles would think, have us think of our great salvation, not so much as a past event. I was saved. 
but as an end-time event when Christ appears for His own. Surely you were saved when you first put your faith in Christ. You and I are still being saved, are we not? From the dominion of our sin. We sin, but it doesn't get an ultimate victory over us. We're being saved every day. But we know very little, I fear, what glories await us when our salvation is complete in the presence of Christ and we are totally transformed by just one look into his radiant face. Last night, uh, my wife and I uh, were sharing these things. Sometimes I run my sermons past her, and when I do, they get better and sometimes more accurate. Uh, But she was a little uncomfortable when I told her that I was going to tell you that you might not want to be always thinking of your salvation in the past. You know, it kind of upsets a sense of security that we had growing up. Many of us in traditions where we were always told to look back to the day we confessed Christ as our Savior. Well, that's a wonderful thing. And so I was trying to explain all of this to her. I mean, after all, the next day was going to be Valentine's Day and I wanted things to be, be on an even keel there. So, uh, before we fell asleep with these thoughts of glory in our mind, what a way to go to sleep. I said, honey, maybe what I'm trying to say, put it this way. Way back when, I was redeemed. Because, as it says in First Peter, he caused me to be born from above by his great mercies. That... What has really happened is, more accurately, frankly, I can say, I am safe. Safe. Because last week we learned that Peter said, in the meantime, you are being kept and protected by the omnipotence of an almighty God. So there's a sense, if I want to be more biblically precise, I don't expect we're going to change our traditions. I suppose I'll still be talking about the fact that I got saved in 1953. But listen, I have a new appreciation that while I am safe now, beloved, I'm looking forward to being saved. Saved out of this world. Saved out of this corrupt body in which sin still works its dastardly deeds. I'm supposed to get, you're supposed to get, Peter says you better get excited about the salvation that is yet to be revealed in the coming again of Jesus Christ because it will motivate your behavior now. So he says in verse 6, for the present, for a little while, do you see it? He says, if necessary, you have been distressed by Various trials. The King James Version puts it this way. Though now for a season. uh, Actually a brief period of time. Some of you snowbirds think the season is slipping by so quickly because it hasn't gotten warm yet. It's just a season, but it's passing. And Peter says, look at your trials in the light of your coming salvation and you'll see that your trials here in the now are only a season and for a little while. This is just a season. There's much more to the salvation which is to come. The best parts of it, frankly. Rejoice in that. But in the meantime... 
By the way, can I emphasize the first part of that word? In the mean time. In these mean times, all that remains of our earthly sojourn is just that, folks. It is a trip home. It's an expectation of the glory that will be revealed to us. A glory that Paul said in one place, if I piled up all my tribulations over a lifetime, they aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. That's our salvation. That's the grace which saved us. It's more grace each day to keep us. But do not forget this future grace at the appearing of Christ. Grace, by the way, in that moment will no longer be for the purpose of sustaining us in our trials. It'll be a grace that comes on the last day to deliver us once and for all from our trials. You looking forward to that? The saints of a previous generation, better than we do, have understood future grace and a salvation still waiting to be revealed. When they sang songs and wrote songs that said things like, when all my labors and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore, that will be. That will be down through the ages. That will be glory for me and for you, too, if your faith is in Christ now. Put your faith in Christ today, because if you do, your salvation is certain. And in the meantime, you are safe. Your inheritance is protected in heaven, and you personally are kept by the almighty hand of God. That is something, folks, to turn a few of you sad sacks into rejoicing saints as you go your way, no matter how cold it's been. But how can you know that you have such faith? You see, with Peter's view of salvation as future... How can you know or can you know and be assured that when Christ appears, you too will appear with him in glory? Now, one apostle, James, says, you want to be sure? Well, look to see that the faith you say you have is actually bearing fruit in changed behavior. I think James was the apostle from Missouri, you know. He's the guy who said, you say you have faith. What's, what's Missouri? Show me. <laughs> and, and it is a great comfort if you and I can look in the mirror and see the fruit of our salvation, God's work in us, and that it is genuine. We, we need that in-your-face teaching of James, especially to challenge those who lay claim to a faith. This is who James was actually addressing People who claimed to have faith in Christ, but were living like the offspring of the devil. Peter, however, led by the Holy Spirit, as much as James was, takes a different approach because his readers are not trying to fake the Christian life. Too much was at stake. They have already left home, and in some cases family members, because of the persecution in their allegiance to Christ, Peter wants them to know, as he has said in verse 5, that they are protected by the power of God through faith. In verse 9, that the end, the end of their faith will mean the salvation of their souls. So, 
to Peter and the first century believer and to us, it should be of considerable concern that we might have assurance that our faith is saving faith. And Peter's approach is to say, let that faith be tested and tried and see what comes out at the end. Will it be gold purified by the heat, in this case of our tribulation, or will our profession only prove to be dross? To Peter, nothing could be more important than that we have this faith tested and tried. If you will, a faith taken into the laboratory of a fallen world where it gets blasted whenever God deems it necessary with a sufficient supply of troubles, trials, and heated tribulations until that faith comes forth as gold, a precious thing. So I ask you the question, if knowing whether your faith is a saving faith is more important to you than just remaining in some earthly comfort zone. You'd be surprised that many professing believers only pray prayers asking for help in the here and now. Lord, make it go away. Lord, please send the supply. Lord, I'm sick, make me well. And on and on we go. Well, those are prayers that are welcome, but search the heart. We may, with James and Paul and now Peter, learn to actually rejoice in your trials, knowing that the outcome of such testing is the proving of a genuine faith. The faith that, since it comes from God in the first place, will be the faith that our text says will receive honor and glory and praise in the presence of Jesus when he comes again. May I also insert this. If we take anything with us to heaven that can be described there as getting praise and honor and glory, let me suggest to you it is nothing that you were born with. Let me suggest to you, it was nothing that you stirred up from within. It was faith for sure, but it was the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If our faith receives praise, it's because it's precious, and it's precious because it comes from God. And so it is worthy of praise. Not to us, but to Him always, even there, be the glory. You know that faith is a hope, right, in things Not yet seen. It's the very definition of faith, the biblical definition, Hebrews 11. And yet faith is in the substance of what you cannot yet touch and handle. I think that's what Peter's after here when he says, look at you. You have a faith that makes you love Jesus even though you've never met him. Well, you've met him, but you've never seen him. And you don't see him now, but nevertheless you believe. You have this faith in that which is not seen, but is in the substance of all that Christ is. In fact, Peter says that a faith tested and tried is essential to our fellowship and present enjoyment of Christ himself. You think maybe your lack of joy has anything to do with who Jesus is? 
No, the lack of joy in your life is an indicator your focus is somewhere other than him who comes to us with fullness of joy, the enjoyment of Christ himself. This is beautiful language and glorious truth for every child of God. I want you to listen to this old fisherman saying, saying this, and I'm sort of paraphrasing again. I know you haven't actually laid your eyes on Jesus. You haven't seen him, but you love him. Though in this meantime, you can't see him still because you believe and greater still because you believe now with a tried and a true faith. That is a genuine faith. Even now in this season of heaviness, he says, in spite of it all, you rejoice. What, what a line he gives us with joy, unspeakable and full of what glory It reflects heaven itself. Beloved, I'm concerned that too many have settled for a past salvation. I was saved in 1954. Whoop-de-doo. That's the grace of God in your life. Of course, remember that time. Rejoice in it. But don't stop there. Whatever year it was, when you walked in aisle, when you repeated the words of some sinner's prayer, some point to a degree, even there may have been moral reform, a turning over of a new leaf. Some of those who have gone that path have said, Lord, I've done this and I've done that. Yet to many he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Far too many, I think, are deceived into thinking that a profession of faith is what brings salvation. In fact, they've been taught that from pulpits. Just say these words after me. Profession of faith. Fellow sinners, let's be clear. The Bible nowhere teaches that profession of faith saves. It is only possession of faith that justifies the sinner. Possession of faith. A possession we have received as a gift from God in His grace. Not mere profession of faith. Anybody can say anything. It's possessing faith. Those are the ones who see the salvation of the Lord in the last day. Jesus taught that the gospel seed should be sown far and wide, didn't he? But he also indicated that while some appear to sprout and grow. Well, here are his actual words. Let Jesus speak. He told us in that parable, the seed is the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing, right? But those on the rocky soil, those, he said, which seemed to produce for a while, yet those on the rocky soil, listen to this, are those when they hear, receive the word, even with a kind of outward joy. But listen, he says they have no firm root in themselves. There is no real faith. How do we know? Here's what Jesus said. They, now look at me, look up here, because I don't want you to misunderstand the word. He says they believe for a while. And then he says, but in the time of testing, in a time of trials, in a time of temptation, they fall away. A tested and tried faith, 
One that endorsed through the end. One that is tested and tried by the severe heats of affliction and loss and pain and sorrow and sins. And yet remains in love with Jesus. That's the faith that saves. And so I say, I for one, I invite you to join me. I say, oh Lord, if it takes the hard things, if it takes the mean things, the hurts and pains of life and the season of trials to prove that my faith is real, send the trial. Search me, oh God. Try me. Test me. See what's there. Because I need to know. For only then can I, though not seeing you now, rejoice with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. And will most certainly receive as the outcome of a tried and tested faith that salvation future. Ready. By the way, when Peter says that salvation is ready to be revealed, it means everything that was necessary to make it ready to be revealed was accomplished at Calvary was accomplished at Calvary. And it's ready. It is finished, Jesus said. It is ready to be revealed. That's all that remains is our final salvation. But in the meantime, Peter, along with James and Paul, would say, Christian, you should be the one people in all the earth that when hardship comes, you rejoice. You get to have your faith proven. If joy gives us away, as I said earlier, nothing exposes our faith for what it really is, as when the furnace of affliction is applied. Is it dross, or does it come forth as pure gold? Is it a faith from God that is a possession and not a mere profession? These are eternally important questions. And listen, someday you will either be glad for this sermon or you will have to apologize for ignoring it. What do you think the Scriptures mean when it cautions us to examine ourselves to see if indeed we are in the faith? Profession does not save. Possession of faith is what justifies. King David, I've used him already in this series as an example. I sometimes can't find a better one than my friend King David. Someone with more problems than you and I will ever have said this. He said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. He's the one who could say, in faithfulness, listen, He's calling God faithful for what? He says, in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Thank you, Lord. Because he says, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Let's get a new view of our trouble. Let's get a different perspective on our pain. Tribulation for the true believer not only brings assurance, a wonderful thing in itself, it is also the best of teachers. It bears the fruit of the Spirit. While at the same time exciting and increasing our hope in the salvation that's waiting for us. That's why some days in the midst of all of it, and faith being tried, in faith we say, 
Oh, Lord, even so, come quickly. Suffering, trials, and tribulation, still there is much mystery in it, I know. But make no mistake, people are either made bitter or they are made better. And those who are made better by their pains, mark this, they are the true children of God. My question to you is, does trouble drive you closer to the Lord or away from Him? That is the test. Gold or dross? The Olympics are on. So are the spiritual Olympics every day of our life. And folks, I'm not that interested in bronze. Let's go for the gold. God's going for the gold in our lives, whether we ask Him to or not. Truth is, we don't have to pray for trials and tribulations. In faithfulness, as He was to David, He will send them. But you see, by our sufferings, we are weaned away from worldly false hopes and mere wishes into the arms of what Peter called our living hope, the one who we may not now see, but we've learned to love, who when we see Him, we will come to know the joys of becoming like Him. Maybe I won't ask anyone today to get saved. Maybe I'll just say, may God bring you to the place in your life where you can know you're safe so that on that last day, you may receive his salvation. God allows. I'm going to give you a fact of the Christian life. And I still hope you're glad you came after you leave. God allows his children to suffer. He is a better father than I. Sometimes when I have seen my children weeping in softness, I have yielded too soon to their felt need. God is a better father, a wiser one. Doesn't mean he's not pained. And doesn't mean it won't be his purpose to wipe away every tear. But that verse is talking about heaven. Not necessarily now. God allows His children to suffer. Do you get that? Come on, we were just months in the book of Job. Does God allow the best of His children to suffer? Say amen. amen. It is a fact, but it could never be without a redeeming purpose. Remember Paul? Lord, remove the thorn. Remove this thorn. Please, God, third time, remove this thorn, Lord. The prayer that God did not answer. But He did give. In the meantime, in the midst of the pain, what did He give? He gave a greater grace. And thus to Paul, a greater vision of glory to his faithful servant. Paul got to actually experience in the here and now divine power coursing through his weakness. And it made the trial, he said, worth it all. He wasn't the author, but he could have been of the chorus that says it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Just this very week, I encountered some beautiful prose. I I don't often bring poems into my sermons. I'm going to make an exception because 
This really struck at my own heart. A woman I don't know, her name is Martha Nicholson. She wrote this poem. The last line in particular that you will hear was the line that pierced my own heart and has left me a better man for the truth that we've just heard out of Peter and that this dear woman reflects in her gift of poetry. Here's the poem. It's called The Thorn. I stood a beggar before God's royal throne and pleaded him for one priceless gift which I could call my own. I took the gift from out his hand. But as I would depart, I cried, But Lord, this is a thorn, and it has pierced my heart. This is a strange, a hurtful gift which thou hast given me. He said so gently, My child, I give only good gifts, and I gave my best to thee. I took it home, and though at first the cruel thorn hurt sore, as long years passed, I learned at last to love it more and more. I learned he never gives a thorn without this added grace. And here's that last line. He takes the thorn to pin aside the veil which hides his face. He takes the thorn, the hard thing, the pain, the loss, the trial, the many tears shed. But it's the thorn that he uses to push aside the veil where I get a better vision of his glorious face. The best use of our troubles is this. It brings us to Him. It brings us to Him. And when you come, you know what you will find. We're about to sing these words. He is a kind, compassionate friend. If I but ask Him, He will deliver. Make of my troubles quickly an end. But I must tell Jesus. I must tell Jesus. Jesus will help me. Jesus alone.